0: Welcome to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's foreign affairs podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and today I'm joined by Dalia Dasake, who has just put out one of the only interesting reports on how to reassess Middle East policy in the slew of such reports that has come out as the Biden administration has taken office. Dalia, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. I was at the I, I was following the rollout of this report, which you and a group of of Rand corporation colleagues put out uh, last week, and I was struck in a sort of sea of content that tries to do big think uh, work on what the American foreign policy assumptions that go into the Middle East are and and how that policy could be improved. Your project here seems to have actually said something new. Uh, so I was wondering if if you want to begin by talking a little bit about the critique that this, uh, that this work levies of the long arc of American foreign policy in the Middle East.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for this opportunity. And I do want to acknowledge my RAND colleagues who worked so hard on this project with me. Um, we did try to advance the debate and to really tackle the big questions of uh, what's why are we still in this region, and what are we doing there, and for what purpose? Um, we know there's a lot of fatigue with the Middle East after decades of war and what looks like not a lot of payoff. Um, we've got lots of other global and domestic priorities. Um, but, you know, we argue the region still matters, and um and that, you know, are we still have core interest in staying engaged in this region. the The issue is, you know how do we do it and what we argue is we just can't go back to business as usual so the critique we have of you know the long standing approaches to this region and they really cut across administrations this is not a particularly partisan thing Um, which is we've been driven largely by what we call a threatism mindset, which is, you know, we look at this region through the prism of whatever the threat of the day is, whether it was the Soviets in the Cold War or Arab nationalists or Islamic extremists or the ever-present concern about Iran, which is so elevated in our current focus on the region. And our feeling is that, you know, this, it's not that we don't have to deal with threats. And in this report, we deal uh, with, you know, we discuss how we manage adversities series. But um, we argue that looking th- at the region through just this one prism has really been short-sighted and at times quite counterproductive uh, because we don't take the region on its own terms and the complexity of problems across the region which don't just fit in the box of whatever we think is the one threat of the day. So that's the main um, that's the main approach that we're, we're countering in this. And we feel what it's done is it's just led to this this, um, investment in keeping partners on our side, uh, so to speak, to counter these threats. And of course, we still have reasons to have good partnerships in the region, Um, but we haven't really assessed these partnerships and evaluated them and what we're getting for them based on what are the regional realities of today. So the big issue that we address are this you know long-standing kind of threatism is a mindset, but also what we are concerned um, about being legacy thinking. You know, thinking from past strategic environments that don't meet the moment of today. So that's really what we're tackling.
0: Start a little bit with the threats themselves, because I w- this is one of the things the, the points I'm curious about. Are are is it is it your contention that we are? Exaggerating existing threats, or that we are actually seeing threats uh, to U.S. core interests where where the threats are not to the United States.
1: So let's take the example of Iraq, which we think deserves a lot of attention um, as a really critical uh, power in this region. And you know, not every issue. Certainly, there. You know, Iran, Iraq is in one of the most critical neighbors for Iran, and it's it's unrealistic to assume we're going to push Iran out of Iraq. Uh, and we know the Iranian-aligned militia groups are quite dangerous for U.S. forces in the region and our partners. But this is not an issue that is just about Iran. There are local and Iraqi-based. Uh, drivers that are just as critical as what Iran is doing in the country, and so we want to make sure that we're not just looking at the threat, you know, from just the perspective the perspective of how we counter Iran, and neglect the other um issues of the countries that we need to deal with and and are really critical to stability. The the other issue about you know the threats and this threat approach is that we think, you know, it's not just our interest in this region or not just about confronting threats. We also have to look at a definition, a broader definition of what does regional stability mean. And in our view, the most critical U.S. interest, because let's face it, we have to talk about the interest with with all the talk at home about, you know, wanting to deprioritize the Middle East, we're tired of the Middle East, too much blood and treasure wasted in the Middle East. You know, we have to remind our own publics, our own leaders, that actually um, instability in this region can actually come back and hit us at home Um, when we have extremism, when we have proliferation, when we have mass migration. um, These are issues that affect Americans directly and affect our closest European partners in particular. So um, we suggest that we need to be focused not just on the threat of the day, but on supporting policies that uh, foster stability and our idea of stability and reduce conflict and what's critical here and what's different than how we've dealt with the region in the past is we don't think it's sufficient anymore to say if it ever was but definitely not today to say that stability means keeping you know our guys in power the strong men in power, uh, you know, it's not to say that um, we're realistic. We're we're we are realistic we are we we do not think there's going to be a big wave of democracy in the region. Um, we're not we're not going to be able to have perfectly democratic allies and partners there. But we do think that we can't turn a blind eye anymore into what's happening within the borders of the of the partners who we are aligned with and we actually think that in today's middle east given a decade of uprisings And the socioeconomic pressures from a region that is extremely youthful, Uh, we still, we have numbers where, you know, over 65% of this region is still under the age of 30 um, and highest unemployment in the world, including women, that, you know, we... We have to take these issues seriously. And we think our partners, you know, this isn't something that we should be at odds with, with our partners. They understand this too. They understand their own survival depends on dealing with these pressures. So this is just a very different way of looking at the region and looking at our partnerships.
0: I mean, it's, it's, it's music to my ears, the way, the way you're talking about this here and, and in the report, which is called Reimagining S strategy in the middle East, sustainable partnerships, strategic investments. Uh, I like that you you have jettisoned this sort of silly binary that circulates a lot where, uh, I mean, the, the the corrective now is that we're not going to care or supposedly that we're not going to care at all about the Middle East. And of course, the, the reality is that a Biden administration that that deprioritizes the Middle East is absolutely going to remain engaged to to a great extent. It's just going to be less engaged than we have been in the past. So the the serious question is, in a smarter, uh, in a smarter prioritization, how do we manage these relationships? How do we set our priorities as opposed to the sort of fake debate of, you know, do we, are we going to pivot away from the middle East? And does a pivot to Asia mean that we're no longer going to be tied up in in this region? Uh, your, your, um, your core assumption that, that you talk about a lot. And, and, and I want, I want to ask if you can get into more specifics about what it means is, uh, redefining stability i mean this is something that we've talked about for a long time and and the what it always runs up against is uh, a realist a traditional realist definition of stability which is you know a, a unitary state That'll take your meetings uh, and do military-to-military cooperation versus the kind of broader-based definition of stability that I think you're talking about and that that we've talked about at the Century Foundation, which is uh, a, a responsive polity that has good governance and accountability to its own people and which might depart on some shorter-term interests from its foreign partners, but will on the on the whole be a much better partner because it will be uh, it will be not just viable, but it will be a good. A good state as opposed to an awful state that that uh, will sometimes overlap with us. So how have you uh, identified that that idea of stability uh, in a way that that you can start to sell as, as the bedrock for, for a new policy?
1: Well, um, I think you put it really well, which is, you know, um, what we're talking about is mutual interest with our partners in better governance, right? I mean, you know, put the democracy... The question aside, which I think has distracted so many people, because as soon as you say that, they're like, "Oh, that can't happen in the Middle East." We've tried that, freedom of agenda, et cetera, et cetera, and we get that. And we're—it's not up to the United States to impose democracy anyway. This is a regional process, and we're probably just in the first stages of this um, unrest and 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 uh, political activism that we've seen. It's on pause right now, but it's continuing. So. We're talking about better governance because if you look at polling in the region, this is what people in the region want they want accountable leadership who can deliver services, um, who can, you know, um, get the infrastructure of their countries developed, provide quality education for their children, uh, provide acceptable um, employment opportunities for their youth, including for their large um, female populations who are not adequately included in their labor markets. These are just basic governance issues. And right now the Middle East is doing extremely poorly in this arena. I mean, maybe as Americans we're not ones to talk right now, but the Middle East really truly is doing poorly. And and so the the point here is we need to be re- we need to be prioritizing our relationships based on this agenda. And that means rebalancing the way we invest in this region. So you're absolutely right. We're we're getting away from this false debate about oh, turn we're going to abandon our our partners and uh, abandon the region. You know we know that's one not realistic, two not smart, and um and three it, it it won't last even if we tried to do that because the region will come back. The issues of the region will come back to us whether we'd like it or not. So you know it. What we argue is. Um, that we need to uh, signal we are no longer subsidizing status quo, but we're also not abandoning our partners, which means you shift the balance from this heavy military investment, um, to more of these governance and development and people oriented programs and support. So, I mean, just to throw out a few figures, um, and we have a lot of data in this report, so I recommend um, your list to your listeners, when you have a chance, to look at some of this data because the numbers do tell the story. And that's one of the things we wanted to do in this report. We wanted to show what we've actually been doing in this region, put the rhetoric aside, look at the numbers, you know, of the... Um, Uh, here we're talking in global terms, Um, we spend or devote uh, over 50% of security assistance and US military services sold in the entire world. Over 50% of those go to the Middle East globally. And we only invest uh, just under 6% in economic development and humanitarian aid. And then if you just look at the region itself, our non-security investments are just over a quarter of total U.S. aid uh, that we give to security assistance. So we these are just kind of an example of some of the statistics we point out in the study, which really underscore the, the way in which we have underprioritized these non-security governance questions and, and the way in which we have had a dominantly, I think, security focus on this region. And our investments have shown that.
0: We'll be right back after this short break.
1: Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply, and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani, and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation, and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy.
0: Welcome back. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, and I'm talking to Dalia Dasake, who's a scholar at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., and who, with colleagues at the Rand Corporation, has produced a, a really fascinating and challenging report called Reimagining US Strategy in the Middle East. Now, uh, Dalia, right before the break, you were talking about uh, disinvesting from the military tool and and shifting to non military ways, and these sort of staggering numbers you cite. Tell a story of, of, of a superpower, the United States that is really reflexively uh, managing its relationships and and projecting its power through these these military tools. Uh, there is a lot of of sort of noise around ending the forever wars and so on uh, in the US these days. But one of the questions I had when when looking at the report and, and listening to you talk about it previously is how much do our partners want us to do? Non-military things, because this this is not simply a supply-driven uh, reflex of of the United States. It's also a demand-driven request, especially from from our Gulf partners, who uh, m- mainly want our weapons and don't want our, our non-military funds or or ideas or suggestions. Uh, so, how does one one shift uh, the, those pipelines? And will will there be takers? Uh, in the Middle East for for a a uh, non-military partnership with Washington?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question, and it's a huge challenge. And I think that's part of the issue. I think there are leaders in this region who are forward-thinking, who do understand that these high-priced, uh, military um uh goods that we are we are selling and that they so ha- have so desired um are not really serving their people or regional stability um of course you know the reality is they still want them and this gets to our legacy thinking problem which is they're not just demanding them right now they kind of expect them because this has been part of the dna of, of the way the us has done business for you know the past several decades so you know um you have a situation, and this is one of the imba- areas of imbalance that we highlight in the study, where over 81% of our foreign military funding globally. Um goes to just three countries in the world, which happen to be in the Middle East Israel, Egypt, and Jordan. So there are expectations of our partners that, um, that this is coming to them. Now, when you look at a country like Egypt, let's say, and Egypt is probably the one that of the three big three that deserves the most scrutiny, um, we have to ask. Um, does that logic of how we uh, went about military assistance in the past make sense in today's environment? There was a, a logic then that we were underwriting a peace with Israel, which was critical for the region. Israel and Egypt were active adversaries, fought devastating wars, um, and we wanted to underwrite that piece. Now, Today, the logic driving Israeli-Egyptian relations, we argue, really no longer requires the um, United States to underwrite that. Egypt and Israel have their own security incentives to cooperate on counterterrorism, and intelligence sharing, in many other areas. And the other thing we we point to, which is that these countries, um, you know, the the, the high-end aircraft. Um, are not as critical for fighting the threats of today, which are asymmetric, which were more focused on terrorism, um, missile defense. And so what we're suggesting is um, we need to have conversations about what are their real military and security needs in today's context. Let's have a conversation about that. This isn't about imposing these things overnight. It's to start a dialogue and to start sharing a new set of priorities. So the shift would not just be from military to non-military, which we think is critical, but also even in the military assistance we give. Are we giving the right mix? Should we be increasing our counterterrorism, counter-extremism programming, um, focusing on missile defense and defensive transfers of weapons instead of all of this offensive weaponry? Um, And that's the kind of conversation we want to start having. And it won't be easy, but we do think there are countries in the region who understand, and this is for their own survival, that they have to deliver better to their own people. And to do that, they should theoretically be welcoming um, this greater focus on economic development education reform employment these are critical issues and most leaders in this region are understanding this now they have their own reform programs that I think are a good indicator of that and we need to be leveraging that better
0: I mean the 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 realist in me so I mean I, I like these ideas uh a lot and I think these are I think this is the correct uh policy approach the way I imagine it unfolds so if you know if the biden administration, takes this approach and says, you know, we're not going to remain complicit in uh, Egypt's dictatorship and we're not going to remain hostage to this legacy arrangement that made sense in the 70s and just doesn't make sense today. The likely way this will unfold is that if those programs were ended, there'd be either a a rupture or at least a a sort of frigid stage in the relationship between the U.S. and and Egypt. Um, And and, uh, I guess the same would happen in Israel or or, uh, Egypt, if we were also to, to reduce or withdraw our military assistance, and there might not be something that takes its place. So what we would have is narratives of, of let's say losing Egypt, or maybe Egypt would seek uh, military Mm -hmm. aid from China and we would have our hands clean from, from the regime's malpractice. Uh, but we would not be helping it be a better regime. Personally, I think that's a risk worth taking. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's okay with me, but I, I think people in Washington see that as the potential downside and say, what's what's a few billion dollars to not be hoisted on, on the lance of having lost country X? So how, how do you read right. read the unfolding of this um approach?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And we do um we do highlight risks in this report. Uh this isn't a cost-free strategy. No strategy is. There's always trade-offs. Um, but we, the risk assessment is that, you know, current policies are not producing good results. So we're not also, so a few points in response. One is yes, there's risk. Two, um, this doesn't happen overnight. This is, you know, through conversations, through assessments. Three, we are not suggesting, um, highlighting one country. We're talking about, this is a broad strategy, right? So this is, it will affect particular countries because we need to be uh, channeling resources into countries and programming who are which are meeting our strategic objectives, right? This is a US strategy. This isn't a this is a US first strategy to put it that way. So, you know, we want to do things beneficial to our partners, but they it has to be mutual. So um what we would say is we need an across the board reassessment of, you know, how much military aid are we giving? Why is over 80 percent of military aid in the entire world given to these three countries? Maybe we'll come out and say, you know, that still makes sense. Um, But we need to increase the economic investments because those are just too small for what the needs of the day are. And maybe we need to keep some of it Maybe just a question of reallocating the eighty-one percent to um, to capabilities that are more in line with the asymmetric threat- threats we face today, and not based on uh, major interstate war, which is what a lot of this military equipment is based on. Um, and so, um, it, it would be an overall shift in U.S. strategy, not a punishment for a particular actor. So I think that is another way and and the last point I would say here and you raise the issue of China or Russia and that's often the common refrain is well if we don't sell them the arms someone else will. Um, Which by the way and, is okay.
0: I mean people say that as if it's it's it means therefore we should right. keep doing it and I always say you know then why not why not why not let them do it and it's not us who are complicit or responsible for Dictatorship acts or terrible policy. Why? Well,
1: we saw this as a very concrete example. And I think the Biden administration is already making moves in this direction in line with some of our recommendations. Which is, you know, the the new policies we've seen on Yemen, which is where, you know, now we are no longer going to be subsidizing the Saudi intervention in Yemen. We're limiting our support to the Saudis on defense, um, which is which is important. Nobody wants airports in Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, uh, facing rocket attacks. Right. This isn't good for anyone. It's not good for the Saudis. It's not good for us. But do we need to be selling weapons that are used in this devastating civil war in Yemen? um, leading to horrible, catastrophic uh, civilian deaths and starvation of the population. No, we don't have to be doing that. Now, if China and Russia can sell those arms and they're going to go to those actors, um, it's not that it's okay because, I mean, our argument is, and I think one of the things we need to be thinking about is getting back to global arms control and getting out of this kind of great power competition on arms racing, which, you know, back in the day, um, you know, uh, George Bush, after the first Gulf War in 1991, talked about a moratorium on arms sales to the Middle East. We need to go back to those kinds of proposals and initiatives and take, when we talk about taking leadership and not abandoning the region, that's leadership, right? Um, But on Russia and China, we also need to be careful because one the you know we United States still has a lot of advantages in this region um partners prefer uh our, our just not not just our military equipment but our economic um preferable investments from from the west um we still have a lot of leverage there so um and you know, the idea of hedging is always there. It's been there for a long time. Um, But Russia and China face their own limits in this region too. And, you know, China has to straddle the relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia. It's still dependent on 40% of its oil imports from the region. It has its own vulnerabilities. China needs the region to stay stable. So, I think we can leverage some of these um, common interests. It's not to say Russia and China are not threats. They're different kinds of challenges for the United States. But we actually in the report, we argue we don't need to play out a Cold War-like competition with Russia and China when it comes to the Middle East. That we actually have some overlapping interests um, and you know, on particular areas like non-proliferation. Um, like the flow of convention, conventional weaponry to this region and escalation. Russia's trickier because Russia acts in a more zero-sum way, as we saw in, in Syria. Um, but we do think there are areas of overlapping interest. So, I, you know, it's not to say that's not a good argument, but it's not an argument that outweighs the benefits of a new approach, and we think the risks are um, manageable.
0: The, when I think about the specifics, uh, both in your report and just in my survey of the landscape, and I think, you know, corrective steps like the partnership with Israel not needing the several billions of dollars that that we that we give this already very wealthy country, the relationship with Egypt really needing a complete overhaul where we're not underwriting this terrible dictatorship uh and and so on and I think about the effective partnerships we have uh in security in the region whether it's with uh Israel or with Iraq or Jordan or the or the Emirates um, and in those cases the relationships work because those countries have services that 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 are genuinely competent in one sphere or another, share a common interest, and in some cases aren't aren't receiving money from the United States, but but are working together in 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 an actual uh, kind of interest. So uh, when I think of getting from where we are now with these legacy commitments to something that that approximates uh, what you're talking about, two questions. One is. Um, can can we sustain the 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 politics necessary to break out of the current pattern and establish new ones? Um, and two, what's the sort of uh, what's the affirmative way you articulate the better? Positive vision that we'd have instead of the threatism uh, uh, approach that's driven us till now. What's the sort? Of, I, I hate to use the the bumper sticker formulation, but what's the sort of? Um, it's the economy stupid uh, way of, of of talking affirmatively about why we'll get engaged and what we're in it for.
1: Yeah, well, you know, starting with the bumper sticker, I mean, this is about more cost effective and smarter ways um, to work in this region. So it is not unstable and does not harm U.S. interest. Uh, because the way we've been going has led to tremendous costs for the United States.
0: Um I mean, is it all about containing containing ISIS-style terrorism? Is that the is that the reason why we'll remain engaged?
1: No, they and that is exactly our point. That's one of the concerns, obviously, is a return to extremism and terrorism that can hit us literally back here. But our argument is that these wars, this isn't just about ISIS, these civil wars in Yemen, in Libya, in Syria. Um, they spill over outside the region. They don't stay in the region. Problems in this region don't stay in this region. So the current approach um, has really led to very, very costly outcomes, um, not just for the region, its people, but for ourselves. So, so our alternative is focused on reducing conflict, de-escalating, and improving governance. Because our argument is you need to deal with the drivers of conflict, not just the conflicts once, say, emerge and we think this is actually a much more cost-effective way to do things when in this kind of segues to the you know the domestic and political you know there's a lot of debate now in the united states about um about our resources and you know what are we doing in the world and so forth and you know look uh, those of us in the foreign policy community are always pointing out that you know foreign aid is just a minuscule Part of our foreign budget, of our domestic budget, right? We should be doing more altogether. That's going to be a hard argument in the current under the current pressures of economic downturn and pandemic. So we're not, you know, unrealistic about saying, okay, we just need a bigger pie, and we could do all of these things. We know there's going to have to be trade offs, um, but we are suggesting that um, that we can shift some of those resources from the security pi- parts of the pie to the non-security development and governance part, and that that's going to have a lot more payoff. And when we talk about non-security, we also mean even security cooperation that we do with our partners. You mentioned Jordan and, of course, Israel. um, Lebanon uh, is another good example. You know, we have really good programs that don't cost a lot that focus on, this was mentioned in our panel the other day with General Votel, you know, focused on cross-border security, making sure bad guys aren't getting through. Um, There is a lot of good cooperation we have That is cost efficient. Um, Training professional forces is very important. This is going to be critical in Iraq if we want to undermine the militia problem in that country that hurts not just Iraqis, but our own interest as well and those of our partners. So we think it's about rebalancing within the pie that we have, and again, we don't want to frame this as a punishment. Um, this is more of this is going to be everybody's going to gain from a smarter way of investing because just pouring money into these, you know, um, high-end uh, fighter aircraft are not going to meet the needs of the moment, and um, and so we need to be focusing our military support that we do give on the issues. That really are the challenges, which are issues like ISIS and other terrorist threats, um, and um, and so we need to be focusing on on that front and 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 having our investments um, in, in those bins rather than uh, the kind of uh, military assistance that isn't really serving our interest anymore.
0: The the, the partnerships that strike me and 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 I confess that this might be whatever that bias is that the things you look at the most seem the most interesting uh but i see the us relationship with iraq and the us relationship with lebanon as really the models of the kind of uh uh let's say checkered but but largely constructive opportunities to have a constructive Across the board partnerships. I'm thinking about the uh, the border police uh, and, and ISF and LAF programs that uh, the United States has done in Lebanon, which have quietly over decades played quite quite a vital role. So same with uh, some of the quieter. Partnerships in Iraq, and not just uh, like the CTS, but different uh, in, intel and training programs that are real long-term security investments that even critics of the United States in Iraq uh, value and, and cherish. And they're part of a political and economic relationship, right? They're not somehow a, a solely securitized uh, military-to-military U.S. partnership with a foreign military. They're they're part of something of something that is a, is. A and if not whole of government is a sort of generalized relationship in which the United States isn't telling a client what to do, but is persuading a client, uh, not a client, persuading a, a, a sovereign state to uh, uh, to cooperate in, in in ways that are mutually beneficial, and in exchange does other things that are more beneficial to to the host the host nation. Those are ambiguous long term uh not easy to describe in in political terms as as uh uh somehow like US victories but they are i think the best the best models going forward and and i imagine that's what when you look at, at a region that would be more intelligently managed in 10 or 20 years, there'd be a lot more of those kinds of relationships and a lot less of the sort of big ticket uh, arms deals that the U.S. has had with Saudi Arabia or the kinds of arrangements that, that the U.S. has with Egypt
1: that's exactly right and and it's not to say we can't have those kinds of arrangements with Egypt we should right um we just haven't because we have this legacy uh type of of assistance but that's exactly right and that the, we have examples of success so when we say overall there have been very poor outcomes this is true but there are examples um that have worked and when you uh invest your security resources i mean overall we think there should be a shift to non-security um, because we need, the, the region needs more development and growth. That's that's the big problem. But we are realistic. Obviously, we are not trying to say we're abandoning our security partnerships, but we do need to reform them exactly along the lines of what you've suggested. So we, um, and we think the problem is when you have 81% just focused on three countries, you're also not allowing Um, for flexibility to be supporting partners who have shown a lot of promise. So Iraq is a good example. We do think Iraq is a really critical, going to be a very, is and going to be a critical partner for stabilizing the region and over time, hopefully deflating um, Iranian influence. Um, But the first priority should be getting Iraq right on its own terms. And so that means, you know, professionalizing forces, having them under civilian leadership, Uh, training competence to uh, police borders, um, counterterrorism training uh, with, you know, human rights standards. Um, Theoretically, we should be working with countries like Tunisia that have been, uh, relatively speaking, better, you know, success stories in the Arab uprisings. Um, Those are critical partners that we should be cultivating. Um, We have to diversify, frankly, our partnerships in this region. And our close allies uh, and partners um, will benefit from this, and so that's part of the conversation we're talking about. That it's 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 revisiting the overall way in which we do business, the overall types of investments, uh, and you know, countries like Israel or and Egypt and Jordan are going to be a lot better off if Iraq is stable. Um, they're going to be a lot better off uh, if Lebanon is able to marginalize um, uh, Hezbollah and have effective security forces in the country. We can't count on the LAF to counter Hezbollah, that's not their mission, but the stronger and more professional security forces you have in that country, um, that are countering terrorism, the better. So, um, so I think that's exactly the examples. And we do point to some of those in the report that we should be leveraging better. And that's part of kind of opening it up again, opening up the discussion to get out of the, the straitjacket of the way we've been doing business in the past.
0: Well, so let's, let's end with a, a, a viability question. Uh, I I hear you saying that uh, that over at least the last three presidencies, uh, uh, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, uh, the U.S. Uh, has simply not accomplished its stated aims in the Middle East. So try, you know, trying wildly different approaches, uh, the result has consistently been strategic failure, uh, and uh, and so you're you're putting forward. The idea that it's it's time to, you know, bring our means in line with our goals or our goals in line with our means, uh, and and change our assumptions. So, how likely are we uh, to see a kind of generational shift in in uh, in our grand strategy in this region? Uh, and especially given that you know the the wonderful crop of talented individuals going into the administration are almost one hundred percent veterans, you know, in some cases, eight-year veterans of a of a previous administration <laughs> that's associated with exactly this sort of, you know, managerial paradigm of a threatism approach?
1: Yeah, um, it won't be easy. Um, I think there is a moment of opportunity, though, now, because even for the veterans of the Obama administration, acknowledge the mistakes, for example, and you've already seen a course correction on issues like um, Feeling that oh, to deter Iran, and even though the conflict in Yemen is, of course, complex and not just about Iran, um, the Houthis have its 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 own agenda, but. Um, you've already seen a course correction there, right? That we can't keep doing that. That's not in the U.S. interest to keep subsidizing these kinds of wars. So I think that the combination of understanding the mistakes from the past, um, also I think a a more sophisticated understanding of what it means to promote and support governance. And this is not an agenda to impose on the region. It's an agenda already happening in the region, right? Um, So I think this is why this moment is different. The region is in a different place. The governance failures of the region couldn't be more stark than ever. I, I mean, you, the, the instability that we've seen um, from the uprisings, but then, of course, over the past year exacerbated, the governance failures exacerbated by the global economic downturn and the pandemic um, and the failure to be able to respond to this is just been devastating. And so it's, I think there's a, you got earlier, you asked about the supply demand question. I think there's a growing demand and there's more empowerment of people in this region. We know there's still incredibly repressive leaders, but you have a region with much more uh, vibrant civil society, much more activism um, and economic potential. One of the things we talk about, if you want the bumper sticker, is look at the region as an opportunity, not just as a threat right? The Middle East doesn't always have to be this basket case, like, oh, this problem we need to, you know, how do we get rid of this problem? It is an opportunity. We need to start leveraging that opportunity. So I think there's growing recognition within the region, which I think will create a better political context um, in this country for leadership to say, you know what, we can afford to do things differently now because we have partners who want to do things differently. And on top of it, the domestic context in this country has changed there's just a lot of frustration and fatigue with with all of these military interventions there's a feeling that we need to prioritize um challenges at home there's different challenges abroad when it comes to geostrategic competition so i think all of these shifts uh regionally globally domestically i think are creating a potential moment to do things different it doesn't mean it will happen because Obviously the near-term threats are always, you know, are often easy to overtake everything else. But we're arguing that we have to start thinking longer term, start getting on a different uh course. Um, and it's not going to happen overnight, but we think it's possible.
0: And maybe 20 years after 9-11, we can finally stop having our our politics and foreign policy held hostage by fear-mongering and threat inflation. Uh, and so this sort of paradigm right. shift you're you're endorsing is maybe politically possible today in a way that it wasn't even 10 years ago.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. great point.
0: Thank you so much for for your time. Uh the report that you were a, a co-author or lead co-author of was called Reimagining US Strategy in the Middle East: Sustainable Partnerships, Strategic Investments from the Rand Corporation and there's going to be a link uh in the in the podcast description for any listeners who want to click to it. Uh it's it's a great report. Uh, Dahlia is a fellow at the Wilson center in Washington. And, uh, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today, Dahlia.
1: Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it.
0: You've been listening to order from ashes, the international affairs podcast from the century foundation. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us to keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. Till next time.